0: Broadcasting from beautiful, sexy, 105-degree Studio City, this is the Knapsack Files, and I am your host, Ken Knapsack. For a Knapsack Files mini sewed special edition, whatever you want to call it, this is just me and myself talking to you, and here's what I decided to do today. Uh, I had the time and had the studio space open, and uh, this morning on the Facebook, I was a challenged. There's a lot of challenges going around in the world these days, uh, ice bucket challenges for good content. I've been challenged a few times there. I did not decide to take the Ice Bucket Challenge. Instead, made my donations for reasons, uh, well, I don't need to explain. I just didn't want to dump ice on my head in the season uh, drought season here in California uh, or, or make a show of it. Just wanted to quietly donate. It, donate. But, uh, of course, now that I'm talking about it, that means it's no longer quiet. I'm still a jerk. Uh, but uh, this morning, I was challenged in um, a little something on Facebook about the top 15 movies, the movies that stick with you, is to be more specific. Um, And I I wanted to do, uh, instead of responding on Facebook, I figured what a good chance uh, I have here with these microphones and these recording devices to, um, well, share with you all, my listeners and those on Facebook who challenged me and who were curious uh, about that. I don't know if I have to make any kind of donation because of this, but I will. I'll pick a charity and I'll donate. The um, donation to the Keep VHS Tapes Alive Fund or something like that, or let's all get together and stamp out. Death somehow. So, um, I'll just dive right in because we got 15 movies to get through, and I don't want to talk all night because Monday Night Raw's on tonight. Uh, it's Monday when I record, so I want to watch some wrestling. Um, so, these are 15 movies. That stick with you, and I'm going to take that to mean um, the movies that have an impact on you, but what I always like to do, and if those of you who have been following me for a few years now or friends of mine, um, I always say my all-time favorite movie is The Fellowship, uh, Indiana Solo and The Fellowship of the Ewoks, excuse me, Indiana Solo and The Fellowship of the Ewoks. Now, uh, I've actually seen that stolen. Believe it or not, in this day and age, I know. It's hard to believe. I have seen that stolen by people who I I know are fifth-degree fans of me on Facebook or friends, I should say. Um, and I have no problem with that. But I, I want this on record. This serves, Your Honor, this serves as a record. I started using that back in the Friendster days in 2002. And, uh, and when I had to list uh, my favorite movie, I just said Indiana Solo and The Fellowship of the Ewoks. That gets out. All those ones. And and I could talk about those ad nauseum, of course. Uh, A top 15 list, I could fill... 3 Indiana Jones of the 4 I could three, fill 3 of, uh, of the 6 Star Wars and, and, and 3 the 3 Lord of the Rings not the Hobbit movies so that'd be 9 and then I'd have 6 movies to talk about so I choose not to do that it's kind of like when talking about music I put the Beatles in the Beatle category and then I'll talk about my other favorite songs and artists separately just because it is so big and it means so much to me uh, the Beatles do that uh, You know, it would dominate a conversation same with those movies Star Wars, Indiana Jones uh, Lord of the Rings, because I love those epics. I'm one of those people. I come from that the cut from that cloth where those epics mean so much to me, and those movies all have a great impact on me. Star Wars, of course, I co-host the Jedi Alliance show on the Shmozo Network with Maud Garrett, and that you know, I, I host that simply because Star Wars means that much to me. Indiana Jones, specifically Indiana Jones, is my all-time favorite movie character, even over Han Solo or Luke Skywalker or Darth Vader or the Imperial Probe Droid. Uh, Indiana Jones, to me, is just the quintessential movie star character I wish... Um, I could be him. I wish I could have those adventures Uh, from a kid till now. I'm almost 40. If you told me that if I put on that fedora and head uh, head out to the the desert there and I had the same fun adventures, uh, danger, but I could survive, I'd be in it. Just teach me how to use a whip. And then Lord of the Rings, which kind of came later in the life because, uh, as I said before, I'm not a book reader when it comes to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, I've read all the Game of Thrones. I figured that counts now. Uh, But... um, I didn't uh, read those growing up, so the movies were my first real exposure to the Lord of the Rings story, outside of just being generally familiar with what it was through just general pop culture knowledge. And those movies affected me in a great way. Two Towers, specifically, uh, is uh, of those three the movies that impacts me greatly. And I could easily talk about those movies, but I don't want to. We're talking about 15 other movies that um, impact me. They leave something behind in my soul when they're when they're done. Um, and I'm, that's what I want to talk about. So here we go. I'm going to dive right in. I'm, I'm, excuse me for pausing here because I've got I've got them all here on my uh, desk. And I'm gonna go through them in no particular order, and that's important because I really can't rank them. They all affect me at different times. And also, the funny thing I've noticed about this list and seeing some of the other lists out there from uh, fans in Schmoville and other people I know on Schmoes, know like Mark Riley and some of those guys, um, there's some similar crossover. And I think that's because if you if you have more than sixty percent on this list, that means you are um, congratulations, you're a w- white writer in Hollywood or or want to be a write a white writer. <laughs> in Hollywood. Um it's just it, we can't help who we are sometimes that we're all kind of Program programmed differently of course each human is a wonderful individual who do, should be cherished and celebrated and learned but uh, we all can't deny that there's a certain genre of um, of just who you are that's why we, we attracted to certain friends or certain people uh, romantically and uh, looking at Mark Riley's list, um, the editor-in-chief of schmothno.com I thought, yeah, that's, that's right, that's why I like Mark, that's why we're such good friends and some of you fans in Schmoville, I, I saw some of your lists and it's like, yep, absolutely uh, I have that too and that that uh, clearly explains uh, why you're fans of what we do in in, in the Shhmoth No World. But uh doesn't mean that uh there's uh, everything has to be the same. I'd like to see some of your lists in response to this. Uh go to the Facebook page of the AppSuck Files and put your list down. So I'm gonna dive right in. I'm gonna go with uh one of um well, one of my favorite uh, things in life is a good baseball game. I'm a die hard baseball fan. And if I didn't include Field of Dreams on this list, I'd be lying to you all and myself included. Uh, I've seen this on other people's lists today going around Facebook and and if you believe the impossible, the incredible can come true. (sighs) Field of Dreams, um, it clearly is not just a baseball movie. It's a family movie. It's a father-son movie. It's a, it, it is a a uh, movie about goals and faith and, and, and putting faith in something you can't see or putting faith in yourself to accomplish something that you can't really see clearly as you started. Uh, if you build it, he will come as a, as a, a voice tells uh, Ray Kinsella. You're going to... And that's all he says. That's all the instructions he gives. It's up to him to decide what he's going to do. He gets a vision of the baseball field and beats it. I, I, I build it. I, I could go through the beats of this movie, but I don't... This is not what I want to do. But what field Dream because the impact it has um number one uh if you're a baseball fan it really does capture what the essence of the game is and its history and its place um the game has changed over the years uh, the game has always been about money number one i could get in that argument with people to go back and watch some of the stuff in uh, um 1860 when some of the labor disputes and in, in, in professional baseball back then it's never just been a game but uh, it has its place in history uh, for what it is. And that speech by James Earl Jones is so accurate to what it means. Baseball, Ray. Baseball. The times have marched on. Um, I'm hurrying through it to get to the, the key points here for me. Um, you, oh, There's so many chill-inducing moments in this movie. There's so many times you just... The, the hair on my neck pops up. The hair on my arms pops up. The goosebumps come. The different chills for different reasons. There's the the, the one at the end. Of course, you can't lie when you realize the whole time it was about his father. Spoiler alert. Um, and, and and that moment, I cannot not cry. I I I every time he turns around and sees his father putting down his catcher's gear and striking the same pose that you saw at the beginning of the movie. Little little misty eyed. And if if it catches me completely off guard, I wasn't planning to watch the movie. I might ball, but there's other moments too, man. When when the um, when when Moonlight Graham, Burt Lancaster, in one of his final appearances and one of his uh, greatest appearances, really because he's such a great job capturing uh, the essence of this character, Moonlight Doc Graham, based on a, a real player. Won, I won one, a bat in like 1923 for the New York Giants. Uh, or appeared in one game. Uh, that moment where he. he that moment where, where Abby Hoffman playing the daughter chokes on the hot dog and and, and you're thinking, oh, yeah, he's a doctor. He can say, oh, wait, if he crosses that line, he gives up that dream. He gives it up. And when he does, when, when Doc Graham crosses over and be, becomes Doc Graham again and saves her and God, man, it's it. it 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 leaves me uh, just uh, it's an impression on me that's never left. Just the sacrifice there and the the uh, just getting that one taste of your dream. But that really, you know, if he had. Got that at bat in 1923. If John McGrath let him by, play more, um, then he would not have gone back home. Then he would not have retired and gone back home. He he might have played a couple more years. Then maybe he wouldn't have become a doctor. He wouldn't have met his wife. He wouldn't have helped all those people in that small town. He he wouldn't have done those things, and that would have been the real tragedy. And and sometimes that's a lesson that life will give you, where you know the uh, we all have our goals. And and Lenin once saying, "Life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans," and that is one of the themes that comes to me from this movie. That sometimes you look around, and you're like, "Oh well, you know, what a bit of tragedy if what I wanted actually happened." Because what did happen is what needed to happen, and that's one of the themes beyond just chasing your dreams and field of dreams. Um, chill moments too. When aside, this is this one to me has no uh, great theme behind it, but that moment where Ray Kinsella has left. Uh, James Earl Jones' character, uh, the the author turned, uh, an activist turned recluse Terrence Mann. When he's left him and he's kind of given up and he thinks he's failed, he's taken him to the baseball game. And, hey, the man's done enough. I'm going to let him go. And he turns around in that Volkswagen van. He makes that U-turn. And there is James Earl Jones standing in in the headlights. What did I see, Ray? Oh, God, that's one of the best moments. I mean, because the first time you see it, it... I wasn't expecting that. And so when he flips around and you're like, yeah, he saw it too. Ray's not crazy, or at least not entirely crazy, because this Terrence Mann's going along for the journey too. Love that movie. Love those moments. Uh, so Field of Dreams is definitely on that list. I have not had the chance to go back to play ball there in Iowa at the field, but it's something I would like to do. Um, switching gears uh, almost entirely, I'm going to go with the, uh, one of my favorite Steve Martin movies, and that is Roxanne. Steve Martin will appear twice on this list, uh, but he appears now here with 1988-89's uh, uh, um, Roxanne. What year was that? Look at this list. 88 or 89, I can't remember. When when Steve was in his, uh, his, his big movie star prime, where he was uh, America's most beloved on-camera uh, comedian, really, on screen. Uh, he had such a great run. And Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is... Um, Oklahoma, Oklahoma, Oklahoma! Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is is one of my favorite comedies of all time, and and a uh, pitch perfect movie directed by Frank Oz, Ian McDiarmid the Emperor appearing in there as the Butler, Michael Caine, and just one of his my favorite performances in and Steve Martin as Freddie Benton But but that movie is one of my favorite comedies, but it didn't affect me as much as Roxanne. Uh, Roxanne, is, of course, is a is a remake or a retelling of uh, the Sierra de Bergerac uh, story. Um, And 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 Martin wrote it, and um, he plays uh, chief C, uh, fire chief C.D. Bales in a small town, and. the theme in here growing up, I just immediately upon growing up, once I hit puberty, I just knew I was going to be one of those guys who was not going to, on, uh, w- though my nose is not as long, I knew I was not going to have uh, the most easy time uh, getting into romantic situations, and I was not going to be uh, the fireman Chris, Rick Rossovich's character, who Rossovich d- should definitely get credit for just completely nailing this clueless beefcake guy. Um, so... Th- to watch this character, C.D. Bales, go through, fall head over heels for Daryl Hannah's Roxanne, and think for a moment, and believe for a moment. This is the, the crux of this, uh, this scene. This is the what if it stays with me. You want to talk about this list uh, about movies that impact you. This maybe doesn't impact me in the best way. The, the character, all the way through the movie, it doubts. Uh, knows his place, I believe. Knows his place. Knows that he really can't get this woman. Um, so... He kind of accepts it, but it's his friend who, who's uh, his, his best female friend who says, "No, absolutely not. Just sometimes you got to put yourself out there, and you get that." So, so he does that. Chief Bales does that, and and basically he he thinks he's he's got to got a shot with her there's a moment and, and and she goes hey i want to go talk to you and they go out hiking into the wilderness up there in the hills beautiful scenery by the way where they shot it up uh pacific coast west canada i believe even on the border there but um he goes up there and she starts to confess things to him and he thinks yep yep here it is you know believe it or not I actually I got a chance with this girl and at the last second she's like talking about the fireman chris the, the beefcake and the pain and the heartbreak that flashes on on Steve Martin's face, but he covers it up and just ah uh, oh, nothing yeah nothing it's okay yeah you're right oh you like this guy okay let me help you uh it is it's it's not just a I'm not going to cheapen it by saying it's a friend zone moment I, I hate that word now because it's been uh, attacked and used incorrectly or not explained properly but it it is this moment the emotional toll that can take. On, on a certain ilk of person of Which especially back 10-15 uh, years ago I was That moment is a heartbreaking moment But one where you just kind of go Yep, that's the way it was supposed to be I guess that's the way it always is uh, it's a heartbreaking moment that lingers in the back of my head still to this day. But the movie is so well done; it is it is truly uh, a comic masterpiece, as Siskel and Ebert call it on the back of this CDK, uh, DVD case. Um, and uh, if you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor: see Steve Martin's Roxanne. And um, does he get the girl or not? I don't want to spoil it for you. You can probably guess though. So. Um, so let's stay in, uh, in 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 the world of romance. Um, this movie, it's on other people's lists. I was glad to see some of my friends had this on their list. Uh, it is When Harry Met Sally, the ultimate romantic comedy. I believe this movie, Nora Ephron and Rob Reiner, deserve all the credit in the world for creating what we know now as a modern romantic comedy. Unfortunately, they created a template that a lot of other people have tried and failed at. And sometimes when something's first, and there was, there was romantic comedies before this, believe me, and some better film historians, uh, Alicia Malone, if you're out there, I'm sure you could probably cite three or four that you'd be like, no, no, this actually is the the, the precursor to the modern romantic comedies. Totally get that. Totally get that. But this one, late 80s, 80, 89 as well. Um, uh, it came out in 89, yeah. Um, this one set the tone for what we know now. It is a contemporary classic. And... Yeah, the template's been worn down, but I think sometimes when something is first like this movie, it gets overlooked later on by future generations. And I look back at that and be like, oh yeah, that's a movie my, my mom and dad like. Or oh, god, that movie. They they see that movie and they think of every Catherine Heigel romantic comedy. It is so not the same. If you have not seen when Harry met Sally, go see a near perfect script play out before your eyes. Go see two well-balanced performances from Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan. Um the one this is the one to me that kind of submitted Meg Ryan as America's sweetheart for that uh, time period. Um this is just a, a great story that stretches out as two friends as they meet in the late 70s moving to New York and they meet up again, and, and it's the story of their friendship that's changed their different relationships, and then, then they become best friends. Then then they cross lines, uh, which which ruins things a little bit. And then, yeah, you know what, in the end, in the end, they're together. And that is so, you know, dare I say, cliche and passe now, and probably for always in the movie, the guy gets the girl, but the path that they get there is so raw at times and so real, the emotions... Even when it's a fairy tale movie-like scenario, I don't know how many people have actually ran from their apartment to a New Year's Eve party to deliver a speech to the woman or man you love. Um, maybe that's actually happened, but when Billy Crystal does it, when Harry does it, and he runs, and Harry Connick, who, by the way, this made Harry Connick the the star that he is, doing those songs on on the soundtrack. Um, that moment when he runs in and and he says, "I realize when." when when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with someone you want you want the rest of your life to start right now that whole speech is uh guy that moment at the, at the end of that i'll tell you, it it it, it it maybe has ruined me for love because sometimes when reality is never as crisp and clean as it is in the movies, we all know that. But I be damned, I, I sometimes in my head I'm convinced that it can be. And I want to do that running on the streets of New York and end up at some party I wasn't at in my jeans and jacket and find the woman in love and say, I love when you get the little crinkle above your, your your nose when you look at me like I'm crazy. I love that you want it to be 72 degrees. I love that you can't order food the right way. All that stuff. Um, it is what it is. It, is the romantic comedy of all romantic comedies. If you have not seen it, I can't imagine out there someone hasn't seen it, uh, give "When Harry Met Sally that much-needed view. All right, let's try to move out of the ways of love. Ah, we're never going to move out of the world. All the great movies are about heartbreak. That's what all the great art is about, right? It's about heartbreak, and you know what they say that in? An Almost Famous, which is next, On my list Almost Famous Which is Cameron Crowe's Love Letter to Rock and Roll It is uh, semi-autobiographical I'm not drinking, swear Um Cameron Crowe, of course Many of you should know And if you don't know Cameron Crowe The director of Say Anything And uh Of course this one Almost Famous And Jerry Maguire And Vanilla Sky And all that uh, We Bought a Zoo All those movies Um Singles All that stuff too Um He started as a music journalist. He started in Rolling Stone, and he was a teenager when he started. He tricked his way into that. He did communicate uh, with Lester Bangs, who was uh, a very famous music – an influential music journalist in the 70s uh, and early 80s. And um, this movie is so personal. It is Cameron Crowe's story essentially. And a lot of the stuff, Penny Lane, Kate Hudson's character, another star-making turn for her where she burst onto the national scene as, as the um, super groupie, the head of all the uh, Band-Aids, uh, Penny Lane. Um that uh, that uh, that's based off real characters. There's a lot. Of, uh, Cameron Crowe spent a lot of time with the Almond Brothers and the Who and Zeppelin, all those times, all those big bands in the '70s. And so a lot of it was based off of that. But this doesn't get too tied up into that. And that's what I think he did such a great job. I love Cameron Crowe. Cameron Crowe writes with his heart on his sleeve, and he writes sweet, sentimental things. And I, I think sometimes um, that, that gets maligned. I personally love Elizabeth Town. I think Elizabeth Town is a great. Movie though Kirsten Dunst's character is a bit of a manic uh, pixie uh, character, that 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 stereotype kind of character that's uh, often maligned now. Um, they're, they're, the movie has faults, but Elizabeth Town has such a great heart and soul to it. And Almost Famous is Cameron Crowe's masterpiece. He put so much into it. He knew what it was. It was his personal. Life story kind of played out, including stuff with a single mother, uh, were trying, struggling to raise him, and a teenager sneaking off to start a rock and roll music journalist career in the seventies. So this movie, uh, for me, just uh, because I started in, in rock radio and had a love affair with music, and the key moments, man, that Philip Seymour Hoffman, the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, you want to doubt? his powers as as an actor, just watch these scenes as Lester Banks, man. He just captured uh, the essence of Banks to those who knew him uh, and also captured the heart of this movie. The heart of this movie, actually, to me, is the relationship of Lester Banks and uh, William Miller, Patrick Fugit's character, based off, uh, essentially, Cameron Crowe. When he makes those phone calls back, to Lester Banks. Lester Banks talks about being uncool, and, and guys like us will never get the chicks, and, and, and art is all, always about loneliness or not getting women, and all that kind of stuff that to me is the heart of that character's story, William Miller's story and him learning about life and and that when you come out of your teen years, this is all, the, life's gonna hit you in the head with some of the stuff, if I had if I had a 15 or 16 year old son right now, this is the movie I'd, I'd want him to sit down and watch uh, This is the movie that would be like, the, this is how life can end up being for a sad, lonely guy. Don't be like that. Um, there's some life lessons in it. And um, the quintessential scene for me, God, there's a lot and a lot of great stuff in here. But I tell you, the quintessential scene for me has got to be when Kate Hudson's character, O.D.'s, and she is... Um, on the floor, and William Miller, who's loved her the entire movie, has to call for medical help, and she's got her stomach being pumped. She's barfing. A doctor and a nurse are ramming a you know tube down her throat, and he's sitting there falling in love with her uh, at this intimate moment he's had with her. And it is so so messed up and wrong in some sense, but I get it. On the other, it is that guy, that that archetype of male who is the protector and the helper. And seeing and there's always those girls and and Kate Hudson's character to me is not a stereotypical female character. It is a complex character, with hidden depth and hidden layers and things in her past she's trying to run from or hide, and things she's very happy and proud with. Uh, is very um, flawed but strong character and uh william will no i get why he's in love with her and that moment when it hits stevie wonder plays in the background and she's barfing and he's uh, also graduating, supposed to be graduating high school at that moment, and they beautifully intercut with that, with the graduating ceremony and his mom there, but he's not, and he's dealing with this overdose. That is the heart of that movie to me, the quintessential scene, along with that Lester Bank stuff. So uh, almost famous, and I do recommend getting the uh, untitled director's edition, the bootleg cup as well. Staying with uh, epics that are emotional epics, Um, I am a Paul Thomas Anderson fan, but over the years I haven't uh, taken that big dive into his um – uh, and it was movies as I did with this movie, and that is Magnolia. I know Boogie Nights might be his masterpiece. Totally get that. Magnolia is all over the place at times. It is a bit weird. It has a giant uh, frog storm. uh It's a little mystical and it's a little magical. But it to me, Magnolia came out in a great year for film, nineteen ninety nine. Almost be. Uh, um, Uh, Not almost uh, famous, but uh, American Beauty was there during that time. Another movie on my list uh, we talk about came out in '99. I loved that year. That was uh, my height as a movie fan when I was just an aspiring screenwriter and the performance in this movie there there's so many that I can praise and I'll start with Tom Cruise. I think Tom Cruise nails it in this movie. He is a underrated actor, which is weird to say because he's Tom Cruise. He's crazy Cruise. He's the ultimate movie star and I don't think he gets the credit he deserves sometimes. And this little little role of Magnolia as the messed up uh, motivational, uh, misogynistic speaker and where it comes from and all this stuff. Man, I I, I thought it was really great and layered. Philip Baker Hall is the uh, kind of skeezy, scummy, uh, dying game show host. Philip Seymour Hoffman, again, in a role that P.T. Anderson uh, wrote for him specifically. Uh, Ricky Jay, the famous magician who's also the narrator of this movie, he has a great uh, little part. William H. Macy, the former child star, child genius, game show winner. I uh, used to be smart. Now I'm just dumb. There's a certain heartbreak to his character that is, that is, uh, I just can't, uh, uh get over it. It's so great. Macy's so good. And then, uh, Julianne Moore is, uh, as uh, Jason Robards' uh, second to wife, or I don't even know if it's second, but watching her husband Jason Robards die and learning that Robards' character is Tom Cruise's uh, father, Alfred Molina has a great supporting role. Uh, Melora Walters, who doesn't get a lot enough cre- a lot of credit for a lot of her work. Um, Phil, uh, P.T.A. wanted her uh, to have this role, but he wrote that specifically for her too. And and uh, the soundtrack with Amy Mann on it, uh, and, and how Paul Thomas Anderson wrote this movie to her songs, and it fits so well. And again, the movie's weird; they all break into a song at some point, sing along to an Amy Mann song. It is a little out there this movie, but it's so I love the spirit of this movie, and to me, the the character that speaks to me because that's well. That's who I am, as John C. Riley, as the lovelorn cop who falls for the drug-abusing Melora Walters, um, and loses his gun. That to me, gosh, I so identify with John C. Riley in this movie. If you want to know who I am, just watch that movie. That is. Generally, who I am, John C. Riley and Magnolia. Love that movie. It is a great one, and I, um, I, I I know people love it, but it doesn't get a lot of the love as much as uh, uh, some of those other ones. Um, possibly because it's a it's a little out there at times. But uh, do not overlook that one. Let's stay with Tom Cruise land Collateral. Yeah, this movie this movie affects me. You know how it affects me? There's some great life lessons in this movie. Michael Mann shooting L.A. at his best. He's so good at shooting L.A. Again, Tom Cruise uh, as Vincent, the cool calculating contract killer at the top of his game. Uh, gets in a cab with uh, Jamie Foxx, uh, his character Max, a cabbie with big dreams and little to show for it. I'm just reading straight off the DVD case right now. Um, this movie is a suspense thriller. It's uh it's it's uh it's got a lot of crime elements to it. It's a bit of an adrenaline rush movie too. It's it's a night uh, with this contract killer and there's a you know police detectives on hot on the trail all that stuff. But at the heart the reason this movie stays with me is Tom Cruise did such a good job. This is why I say I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a Cruise guy, man. The character of Vincent, there is something to that character. Even though he is a sociopath, a killer, a contract killer, coldless killer, there's some great heart to him. And even though that guy deserves to die, he deserves his death too. And he knew that's the death he probably was going to have. But there's something that is so right about this guy. When he tears into, and this is when the movie switches for me, when he tears into... Max the cabbie, who is this cab driver who has these dreams of starting his own limo company. And he posts puts uh, postcards up on the back of his cab visor and all this kind of stuff. Then he also meets a woman at the be- – you know, Jada Pinkett at the beginning of the movie. And, and Jamie Foxx kind of cowers from going after that. And it's Vincent, this contract killer who by this time has been revealed to be the bad guy in this movie. And the guy who has Max's life in his hands essentially because he did this before in, in northern California and killed the cab driver after all of the events. Um Man, when when he's laying into him in the cab about you don't take, chase your dreams, you're driving this cab, you have and you will be, you didn't go for the girl, you, lied to your, you basically lie to your mother, all this kind of stuff. It is. It is. It is an odd go chase your dreams. It, it, whereas Field of Dreams is about chasing dreams and spirit and all this good stuff. Collateral is the same message wrapped up in in contract killings and violence and dirty gritty LA at night, even with a with a coyote drifting down the streets. I love Collateral. It is a suspenseful movie on one hand, but it is there's some life lessons in here, and if you open yourself up to them, you're going to get them from that movie. Uh, speaking of life life lessons, probably um, one of the biggest life lessons uh, I have learned is uh, comes from High Fidelity. It's not good Life Lessons, though. 1999, High Fidelity, uh, by the team who brought you Gross Point Blank, which, of course, John Cusack and his writing and directing teams there. Um High Fidelity is based off of uh, what is uh, one of my all-time favorite books, Nick Hornby's High Fidelity, and this is a great adaptation of that book. I've read that book so many times that I've actually stopped. I've, I tried reading it this year, and I just so knew, knew the book so well, I had to stop because it was almost like, yeah, I know what's happening. I not just know what's happening next. I know what like, sentence is next. I, I'm going to wait about five years and reread that book, but... Cusack's High Fidelity, uh, his version, is such a wonderful version. They take, you know, we always worry so much about movies uh, 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 taking books and and messing them up. Or, you know, we see what's going on with Game of Thrones right now on TV, where that's a spectacular TV show doing doing a wonderful job with a property that should not by any means be successfully adapted. High Fidelity, man, they did some changes in the book. It's London, in the movie, it's Chicago. They changed some surnames. They kind of messed with some plot stuff a little bit. But it is such a great telling of it. And I wrote an article years ago when I was a music journalist called The Blessing and Curse of Hornby's High Fidelity. For a certain type of male, I could say person, but it's a certain type of male, that collector, the lonely... (laughs) Hard on his sleeve. Uh, you see where it's gone. The collector who must have every rare B side of his favorite band, who must have every movie in his collection, who must have star Wars, legos eh, me, um, all that kind of stuff that there's, that is a certain genre of man. And it's not a healthy genre. It is the, it is the suspended state of, of maturation. And it is, uh, it is not a great, uh, it is not a great situation to be in actually. And, uh, and that's why I wrote about the blessing and curse of this movie because when I saw this movie, I so strongly identified with so much stuff in this movie that I remember I actually wrote – like I didn't have a girlfriend at the time and I, th- I actually wanted to go out and get a girlfriend and break up with her just so I could have a story to tell, which got me some some hate mail. And I totally understand that. They're saying, oh, so these this girls' uh, feelings don't matter and you just want to go hurt someone intentionally. That's not what I meant when I wrote. What I meant was the – you know, as cumbersome as I said it then and we will say it now, it just was uh, like I wanted to experience all the range of emotions and anger and frustration that, that this character, Rob Gordon, uh, in the book Rob Fleming we're, were experiencing and how it ties into to music. Um, but that's not always a good thing. And that's why uh, I watch this movie now and look back and go, ooh, I should – some things I should have done differently in my 20s, that's for sure. But what I love about this movie, the lesson for guys like me who watch this movie, and I subscribe this movie as medicine to a lot of people I know, a lot of younger guys I know who work for me or I come across. The lesson in this movie is uh, the happy ending in this movie isn't the wedding bells. It isn't they run off and they're happy forever. Uh, There's a chance that the two main characters in this movie might never have gotten married or might have broken up later on. But there's a marriage proposal in this that is probably the worst marriage proposal ever. It's so just like an afterthought, but it it isn't actually. It's 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 a great deep thought in the fact that this character takes that step to even consider asking his uh, a girlfriend for her hand in marriage the fact that it even crosses his mind in a very very serious manner and the fact that he's going to commit to this relationship despite the fact that he gets this means he no longer can make mixtapes for new girls he has crushes on and all that kind of stuff for the men for the men out there like me who are in that state of suspended maturation that is a valuable lesson that we all need to learn you just need to kind of take that step forward you need to change Uh, when his girlfriend yells at him that you know you're always afraid of change, especially that when it happens to you um god that's a that's a deep lesson to learn in a movie that's about pop songs and that's what Hornby captured so well the source material if you haven't read the book high fidelity it's just a lesson of modern love um in these modern pop culture times and uh wow, high fidelity i that movie someone once wrote me they e- emailed me about 99 um a former woman in my life said hey they made a movie about your life and then sparked a um uh <laughs> then sparked quite an argument between us so um high fidelity on the list we'll stick with hornby let's stick with hornby and go with about a boy uh, that is another movie uh, based off source material written by Nick Hornby about a boy, though the book is a little uh, more – well, there's a little bit of more of a difference in the two properties. About a boy, the movie with Hugh Grant and um, Rachel Weisz, who, who – uh, God, I just love her in that movie. She's so gorgeous and, uh, and great. It is um, – they, the book it, The book takes place in, like, 1993. It has a huge subplot based around Kurt Cobain's death and the character of Ellie, who's in the movie, um, as kind of a secondary character who um, – kind of the main character, Marcus, the 12-year-old boy, kind of falls for uh, this 15-year-old girl. Uh, it's a subplot in the um, – in the book or in the movie but in the book it is a lot bigger and again it's a time piece it, it takes place around 1993 kurt cobain's death factors in greatly so the book is uh, a lot different and i know they had some tv show that's out now i haven't even tried watching that on uh, on, t- on the tv i just can't imagine it being a- as good as this movie and um again some themes you see some themes in my life you see my problems play out um Will Hugh Grant's character is a man who refused to grow up, refused to take any responsibility. He didn't have to. His uh, father uh, wrote a famous Christmas song, and he's been living off the royalties ever since. And he is a man to himself. He's an island. If you um, if you don't know what that is like to be that island, let me tell you about it. It is at the same time the greatest existence. And the worst existence. I am an island. I am a rock. In eighth grade, that was my favorite song, Simon and Garfunkel's uh, "I Am a Rock." Um, That's not a good sign. And this movie, this movie really captures all that. And I still watch it to this day. This movie came out 2002. Yeah, 2002. Uh, Less less than ten years after the book came out. Uh, Or yeah, less yeah, than the book takes place. I should say. Um, I still watch this movie and take notes take mental notes on changes i need to make in my life and that is the hidden gem of this movie again it it comes off maybe as a slice of life coming of age romantic comedy and it is funny there's some great stuff in it it's very british they kept uh this story in in mariol england there um badly drawn boy does the soundtrack quite well it was my uh, first learning of badly drawn boy uh he's a great artist uh, But this isn't a music show. Um, There's a great lesson in here about family and friends and getting outside of yourself and not being that island and the importance of not... Uh, being an island, and and how it's not always just about romance too. It's it's about friendship and connections. And if you listen to my show on depression, that's one of the key things. One of the key things I believe people who are depressed fail to do is they lock themselves away on an island, and that is a bad thing. And and uh, the character Will in, in About a Boy wasn't necessarily depressed. Actually, he quite enjoyed his life. No wife. No kids. No. No commitments and you know it's not about those individual things if, if you don't want to get married and have kids I don't necessarily want myself uh, to do that but it, it, locking yourself away is a dangerous thing and I sometimes worry uh, at my age that I'm getting locked into uh, the will patterns which is the character here in this movie and maybe I need to uh, uh, break down those walls and I, I still watch this movie hoping and praying that the lessons sink in Mm, about a boy. It's deeper than you think. Speaking of deeper than you think, I'm going to go with this one. A little bit of a wild card, folks. Got in my hands here. Jerry Seinfeld's Comedian. Documentary. Kind of a documentary. It's a documentary, but it's uh, a little bit different uh, than just a regular documentary. It follows Jerry Seinfeld we all know jerry it follows him post seinfeld the show and where he tears down his act and rebuilds it joke by joke club by club tour by tour and even though he even though he's seinfeld he struggles he bombs he confronts self doubt and he has to seek his friends and colleagues for support. And along the way, there's a, a younger comic at the time uh, named Orny Adams who's still going strong today. And they kind of in across cross paths. And uh, I believe the story was that Seinfeld bumped him on one of the shows that they were shooting for this movie. And so just kind of something kind of came out. A connection came out of that. And as two contrasting personalities um and it's Seinfeld that is, you know, coming off again as Seinfeld, man. He just rounded, finished the run on on the show. And it's watching Seinfeld struggle and how you must always work. That's one of the lessons for me is that you must always be working. You can't rest on your laurels as a creative person or a successful person in any line of work. But also the life lesson, again, ties back a little bit back to the uh, about a boy thing. But it's uh, also for those for those out there who struggle to understand people like me who put work and front, and who are a bit of an island. Whether or not I think I need to get off that island or not, there is a certain side of me that never will. Work comes first. Um, I don't want to get married. I don't want to have kids. All that kind of stuff. And though Seinfeld eventually did, later in life, after he worked his ass off to get to where he is, and his wife is in the movie, um, he he really, really you know, captures what I explain in a story to Orny Adams that's told at a comedy uh, club there where and he's complaining about hey i I'm, I'm coming up on thirty and all my friends are getting married and they have kids, and well maybe I'm not supposed to be where I'm at and I'm still struggling with this stand up thing and someone else just laughing at him and tells that's not what it's about, and he tells him this great story. Uh, about a uh, the Glenn Miller Orchestra lands. They're doing a gig in the 40s, and they have to land. That there. there's so much snow. They're going to a gig, and it's on a holiday. It's like Christmas, and they have to land in a field. And they all have to carry their equipment, and they walk through the snow, and their uniforms are wet, and the and their and the equipment's heavy. And they pass a house, and they look. All of them are looking in the window of this house, and it's cold outside, but in the house there's a fireplace, and it's warm, and it's Christmas time, and there's a family. And the father's sitting at the table and they've got kids and the wife comes out with this beautiful plate of food and and, uh, and it looks so warm and loving and inviting. And one of the band members looks looks into that and goes, huh, who wants to live like that? And that, to me, is the life of an artist, the life of someone who puts uh, their passions into their career and puts their career first. Is it always right? No. Go watch About a Boy maybe learn that lesson. But this one, Comedian, if I want people, if people are struggling to understand who I am, this is the movie I might actually put into their hands more than anything else. Jerry Seinfeld's Comedian. Watch it. Give it a shot. It is uh, not what you think it is. It's not just a documentary. About comedy, I'm gonna, uh, for the sake of time, gonna connect two together on the list, and that is my Wes Anderson favorites, uh, Rushmore and The Royal Tenenbaums. Uh, Bottle Rocket is great as well. I even like Life Aquatic. I could have a whole debate on Grand Budapest Hotel. I did not like that movie. Uh, Moonrise Kingdom, I did like I actually. Uh, Moonrise Kingdom, in some ways, I liked more than Grand Budapest because it had a little bit more raw, real emotion in it, though Wes Anderson has become Wes Anderson. He's very stylized now, and that's okay. Wes Anderson is, I would say, my favorite director. Uh, I can accept wherever he wants to take his career and whatever he wants to do. I will follow him. I will watch whatever he wants to do. And I know a lot of people loved Grand Budapest Hotel, and a lot of people were shocked to find out that I didn't because especially those that have known me for a long time, Rushmore again one of the great movies from 1999 and The Royal Tenenbaums are two of my favorite 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 movies just watched Tenenbaums the other day Rushmore for me is a story about uh, it's a story about a character I, I'm familiar with me I'm egocentric I'm egocentric in these lists I'm sorry I wish I could just like uh, some random movie that has no meaning that I take on personally. Rushmore, I watched that movie in a small theater in Northridge, California, an independent theater. Uh, the whole, The movie didn't even fit entirely on the screen. It didn't matter to me. Love this movie. Love Max Fisher. Love Bill Murray. The reemergence and the resurgence of Bill Murray started here. This is a great movie. Um, It is quirky, yeah. It is uh, dry humor, yes. But to me, this is one of the funniest movies of all time. Um, uh, Brian Cox is so great. Seymour Cassell is so great as his father. Mason Gamble, 10-year-old sidekick to Max Fisher. Man, Mason Gamble does a great job. And Schwartzman and Williams, Olivia Williams, have a a great kind of almost – I will not say anti-chemistry, but it's it's believable the crush that he has on her and even her for a moment considering considering they play that so well or this adult in her, in her 20s would consider a 15-year-old kid. It seems scandalous, I know, but there's a moment where you buy into it when it's real because they do such a good job of setting up her emotional needs um, and the tragedy of losing her husband and then this kid coming along. Reminding her of her husband but throwing himself completely at her uh, like a crazy, uh, emotional, heart-on-the-sleep 15-year-old guy would. um, My favorite, the quintessential moment for me is actually the end uh, where Max Fisher has put on his play and it's a success and everything's good. And they're about ready to have the slow motion, the traditional Wes Anderson slow motion ending to the movie um, uh, with uh, the song of the law playing. that moment where he he's he's gotten hurt in the play and he's got stitches and a little blood on his face and uh, Olivia Williams asks him, um, you know, are you uh, are you okay? And he's like, I'm hurt. I got hurt a little bit, a little bit, but I'll be fine. Uh, that is to me not just obviously about that moment. It is about that character and that path and that story, and it's about life to me. And and sometimes we we fear getting hurt. We fear the things that happen to us, and you just got to sometimes realize, yeah, I got hurt. But I'm okay, and that to me is the ultimate theme of that movie. It's not just a kid, quirky kid, writing plays, or being part of the yearbook club, or wanting Latin taught again. Um, and there's some great stuff with Bill Murray's character too, and, and 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 some lessons there. But to me, that moment at the end of that movie—Are you okay? Yeah, I got hurt, but I'll be all right. That is a life lesson that I think you know you need to learn. And Royal Tenenbaums, uh, I I think this this to me may be. It's obviously when Anderson started to turn a bit, where he started to become Wes Anderson. It's very stylized. But I'd almost say this is his masterpiece movie. Uh, Rushmore, uh, I can understand that argument. I can even understand people who say, hey, he started and stopped at Bottle Rocket. Bottle Rocket was the most realistic of his movies. But this one, um, all-star cast Gene Hackman, Ben Stiller, Luke Wilson, Owen Wilson, Jellica Houston, Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, Danny Glover, Bill Murray, um... Man, I'll tell you, this movie is – is there's some layers to this movie that I love and some of the, the redemption of um, an absent father, the redemption of anybody and and someone who may have been a scoundrel, may have been a bad person, wanting to get some redemption or make up for some things in the past. And, and how do you deal with that? How What's the sincerity level of that? Um, ben Stiller's character going through the death of his wife and uh, – all that kind of stuff that ties to it, and, and the weird—it's the weirdest—the unrequited love story of Gwyneth Paltrow and Luke Wilson's character, because they're technically well, they're adopted brother and sister, so it's kind of this weird subject matter. But if you ever dealt with unrequited love situations, the the the, the story that they go through to me is is an, is one of the lessons I've learned, uh, and my romantic and, and misadventures. And when Gwyneth Patrick says, I think you and I just have to be sec- secretly in love for right now and be okay with it. Um, that one stings for me a lot too. And um, as someone who look ladies, if you're out there and you want to get married, uh, just go ahead and start dating me and get involved with me on some level because eventually uh, you will leave me. And the next person you meet will will get married to you. It's kind of a scientific fact now at this point in my life. And I struggle with it sometimes, but there's a moment here where Gene Hackman as Royal Tenenbaum uh, finally signs divorce papers, allowing his ex-wife Angelica Houston's character to to uh, uh, marry M- uh, Mr. Sherman, the accountant, uh, Danny Glover's character. And um, when he finally comes to um, and shows up with the divorce papers, and and he looks at the boss and says, "You know, I, I didn't like you at first, but now," and he points at Danny Glover and says, "I didn't like him at first, but now I get it. He's everything I'm not." That was a very cathartic and healing moment for me to watch it on screen, and it's something that I still pop this movie in uh, now to get to that point. I've seen this movie so many times that I can just kind of leave the movie on in the background, but when it comes to that point, I stop. I stop what I'm doing And I pay attention to that moment That's Gene Hackman's character Realizing kind of the way it's supposed to be Sometimes you're not always supposed to get the girl you want to get You're always not always supposed to get what you want to get And sometimes it's because you're not the better choice You're not the better, better option You're not the better man And when Gene Hackman, uh, Royal Tenenbaum, says that I didn't like him at first But now I get it, he's everything I'm not It's my heart tips a little hat And goes, yep, you're right Lesson learned, move on Um, four left here. We're racing through here. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is also on my list. And I'll tell you what, a lot of people like that one. Um, This is uh, just a great movie. Jim Carrey. uh, It's easy to forget someone like Jim Carrey. It's easy to forget what kind of a caliber of actor he is. Because sometimes when you become so big as a movie star, I loved him on Unliving Living Color. My early 90s were spent with many... Jim Carrey T-shirts, Fire marshal Bill's shirts and everything. Um, when you become kind of as big as he did post-Mask and, and Ace Ventura Pet Detective, and you're grabbing your butt and talking out of it and all that kind of stuff, It, it it's not like he... he He's not. That's not who he is as an actor, and he put, comes out with this movie, and this is one of the movies that um, he tried with Man on the Moon, which is another movie I love. I love Andy Kaufman, so I love Man on the Moon. I think he did a, a surreal job uh, with that one, but um, uh, Jim Carrey's Joel and Kate Winslet's Clementine, their relationship is perhaps one of the most realistic depictions of a relationship, especially at this time. When this movie came out, I don't think you, in, in mainstream, and this was as quirky and independent as this movie was, it, it hit the mainstream. Um, this movie, it, 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 this was the first time you, you really saw, this wasn't fluff. This wasn't the post Harry Met Sally romantic comedy fluff Uh, this was a realistic depiction of relationships and I, that stays with me. That's why this movie stays with me and it stays with a lot of people. Um, yeah, Jim Carrey, again, it's that kind of lonely white guy, uh, archetype that I've been talking about. Uh, and when he says at the beginning, you know, why do I fall in love with every woman that looks at me? Totally got that. Totally got that. Especially back when this movie came out, that was me. But, um, their relationship and what they go through, and, and the struggles and everything. To me, the movie, the last scene of the movie, when they get back together after all the mind erasing and all that kind of stuff happens, and they realize what's going on, and she kind of is running away, saying, "Hey, you know, we're gonna, I'm gonna get bored because that's what I do. We're not gonna have things to talk about, and blah blah blah." And he looks at her and goes, "Okay." She goes, "Okay, okay." It's the best ending to any relationship movie I've ever seen. It's realistic. It is um, touching. It is is just true. And that, to me, is uh, what makes Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind what it is and why it uh, lingers with me. Speaking of uh, uh, last scenes, um, going back to Steve Martin here with Shop Girl. I've read the book. Yes, I've read the book. The novella, Shop Girl, which is great. The movie, which Steve Martin uh, helped... uh, Put together for his own, uh, adapting his own book, um, and uh, going with kind of an unknown director at the time. Uh, okay, I can't even find his name right here. So, uh, a <laughs> not Tucker who did a great job. Uh, Jason Schwartzman again shows up on us. Claire Danes. Uh, again, well, I, I I enjoy Claire Danes' work. I think uh, she really captured um, the the essence uh, that, that Steve Martin was looking for in this movie. The the essence of the Shop Girl. Um, our character Mirabelle, but Steve Martin kind of casts himself here in... He's in, in a ways he's, he's a villain in this movie. If you really look at it, he's the one not opening up his heart. He's the one who causes a lot of pain. He's uh, to himself and to Mirabelle. He's the one who's kind of who's kind of the uh, the scoundrel in this one. But he is wrapped up in a person who's a who is a nice person, a genuine person, a good person who does good things that he's capable of doing. Which in this case, it's only paying paying off her college loans or providing things for her because that's the only way he can show love. He has intimacy issues. She is a, is a young woman learning uh, life she, from the small city into the big city, and her art and everything. And Jason Schwartzman's character, I don't, I, I don't like uh, people who slag on Schwartzman sometimes because he, he. I love his character in this movie, the the path of growth he takes. This kind of schlubby kid who's kind of quirky has no graces, no social graces. Certainly doesn't know how to treat a lady right. Um, his growth. Which is humorous. Probably the most humor from this movie derives from his story, his growth, going on the road with the band. Um, I love when he returns and he's a suit wearing, uh, same guy, same spirit, but now he now he knows how to treat a lady right and he knows how to be a be a better lover and boyfriend and, to Mirabelle, and because he gives him, all of himself to her, which is what Steve Martin's Ray uh, character of Ray Porter could not do. And for me, it's something I struggle with, especially as I get older, not giving myself to everyone, not just even in romantic situations, just who I am. I, I'm very withdrawn at times, very standoffish, very much Ray Porter in this movie, especially after I started wearing suits, everything. Uh, so at the end of the movie, towards the end of the movie, where he admits to her, uh, Mirabelle, that he, he loves her, or he did love her. And they've already moved on by this time, of course. And he watches her slowly run back. And she cries because she... The pain of hearing it and also maybe the joy of hearing it retrospectively or retroactively, excuse me, uh, is, is affects her in a great way. And I love that moment when she just kind of nods with tears in her eyes and, and and he admits it and it's hard even then for him now. And he watches her. And because, again, he's kind of the villain of the movie, he watches her go off into the arms of Jason Schwartzman and just into that uh, loving embrace, the all-encompassing loving embrace that Schwartzman gives her. And he watches, and he's, even, he's got a girlfriend with him there that night, but he's still sat on the sidewalk, Steve Martin's character, standing there watching it as it goes into slow motion. Heartbreaking moment for me on a personal level, and uh, it brings tears to my eyes, and that movie, this movie stays with me for days after i watch it which is why i love it right because why not why watch a movie that doesn't affect you emotionally and make you cry right <laughs> i don't know All right. We've got kind of a modern classic and a recent new picture around my list. Thank you for listening to me blather to myself in my room um, as I eat and drink uh, leftover party food that uh, I have so much beer in my refrigerator from a party over the weekend and I don't drink beer Uh, and a ton of Reese's pieces. I do eat those. Those are gone now. uh, 1992, The Last of the Mohicans, Daniel Day-Lewis, Madeline Stowe. At the time, Madeline Stowe was my favorite actress. I still enjoy her. I don't watch the TV show Revenge, but I catch clips of it just because of her. Um, I love Madeline Stowe. If you're not familiar with her work, just go find her. Uh, early 90s, she was at her peak uh, as a performer, and um, she... And Daniel Day Lewis have such great, just sensual chemistry, restrained sensual chemistry in this movie. If you don't know, the story of the Last Mohicans and Decorius, is based on the American Literary Classic by James Fenimore Cooper. Uh, there was a movie adaption of it in the 30s, I believe, uh, which I actually have not seen. Um, but this is a, a very realistic uh, ad- adaption of the movie. Um, I, I I'm just I'm talking about it now, and this movie came out in '92. Um, it's kind of a modern. I look at it now; it would fit. This movie could come out today, and you wouldn't think uh, it's not of its time—the early '90s. It was a very realistic depiction of of uh, the violence and the just rawness of the colonial times back there, uh, back then. Um, but that's not why I like the movie. I like the movie because. Um, Look, I love Daniel Day Lewis's uh, character, and I, I, uh, I actually grew my hair out very, very long, and did what I called the Hawkeye, which is I had uh, a ponytail, but also so much hair that I had a knot. Part of my hair wasn't a ponytail, and I just, and it was specifically because of Daniel Day Lewis, I was trying to ape his look here. Um, but um, I'll tell you what I like about this movie is <laughs> the sacrifice of the British the 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 British soldier who was uh, betrothed or intended to betroth uh, Madeline Stowe, her character Cora Monroe, he's supposed to marry her. She doesn't want it. There's no passion there, and he's a dick. The whole movie, he's just a dick, and he's a dick to Daniel Day Lewis. He's a dick to Madeline Stowe. He's a liar. He is the bad guy until you realize, you know, what he did love her in his own way. He loved Cora Monroe. He loved her so much. He loved her so much that he was willing to sacrifice his life and be burnt at the stake so that she could escape with Hawkeye. He gave her that gift. He gave his life so that she could go uh, escape and, and, and be with the man she wanted. That's how much he loved her. And when I watched that in high school, 1992, I was a sophomore, I went, oh, okay, that's how you do it. Again, I seem to learn the wrong lessons. <laughs> from these movies but that to me is why last movie stays with me that moment where he he says no 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 take me take me I, I i'm a i'm a british british soldier i have more value take me me for him and cora doesn't know what's going on she thinks hawkeye's about to be burned at the stake and they do the switcheroo and even hawkeye's like hey wh- what are you talking about no, no, no! Take me! I, I am the long Caribbean. I am the long rifle. Take me! And, and it's too late. And they burn the British officer, uh, as, as she gives that one last look at him from a distance before Hawkeye shoots him and, and puts him out of his his misery. Man, that's some deep stuff. That's deep stuff. Sort of deep stuff for a high schooler like me to look at and go, "Oh, that's how love is, huh?" Whew this movie uh, outside of that though great soundtrack oh my god great soundtrack great great score Um, it's got a this movie packs an emotional punch it's got some action it's got it's got a lot in it I love Last Movie it is epic and it is good alright gonna close out here as we uh, ramble on here on the Knapsack Files uh, top 15 movies my response to those out there um, who challenged me to name the 15 movies that stay with me I'm gonna close with more of a recent movie but I just uh, recently watched it again and confirmed for myself that this movie would easily make a top 15 list if I was asked. And then, hey, I was asked. And that is uh, from Jason Reitman, Up in the Air, which is another of a, uh, adaptation of a novel. Uh, a lot of uh, good books. Uh, a lot of books out there um, uh, make good movies, man. you got to do it right, though. This one, um, I haven't read the book. One of the reasons I was set to read the book, then uh, kind of read... Uh, a little review or something that said the movie is quite different from the book actually. So I just I just oh, I'm going to enjoy the experience of the movie. Maybe one day I'll read the book. George Clooney uh, is the star of this movie, and again, there's another another superstar who you know what he is he is a damn good actor, and I uh, love his work in this movie. And Vera Fragama, um, Anna Kendrick, Danny McBride in a small supporting role, Jason Bateman in a small supporting role. They all make this movie. J.K. Simmons who's in one scene, my favorite scene of the movie, is that scene with George Clooney and J.K. Simmons, and he's firing them, and he asks them, when was the first time they paid you to give up on your dreams? And Simmons' character has been adversarial the entire time during this firing, yelling at Anna Kendrick's character and yelling at George Clooney, uh, being uh, you know, defensive because he's getting fired. He knows exactly and he knows exactly the amount that his his day job first paid him and the year they did it, and he gave up his dream on being a chef. And that is a powerful moment, a powerful moment for me. As someone who struggled with a day job that I maybe have hated over the years, but had to have had, and and taking promotions when I didn't want to, and and you, you know you kind of get in that spot, the comfort of money, the safety of money. It's a dangerous spot to be in. It's a good spot to be in. I like I like the job I have and what it provides for me. I'm not complaining about it. But there are times I wish I'd taken that leap. And This movie has that theme in it, but it also has, again, if you notice, in a little. Little uh, <laughs> theme I have. The solitary life of uh, Ryan Bingham in this uh, movie is um, it's stunning in how just sparse and temporary it is. And how he goes from being happy and content and not knowing it's a problem to, at the end of the movie, being shattered. And that's what I like about this movie. It doesn't end on a necessarily happy note unless you count. What happens to Anna Hendrix's character? But man, I'm telling you, this movie leaves me shattered and a bit afraid. Don't be like Clooney's character in this movie. Don't empty your backpack. Go back and watch *About a Boy* and learn the lesson of not being an island. This movie. You want to talk about movies? This is my. If this is my top 15 movies that stay with me, *Up in the Air*. Absolutely stays with me and not in the best of ways. This movie's haunting to me. Uh, but uh, as a movie itself, it, it's got some funny moments, it's got some sweet moments. The, the relationship between Clooney and Vera Fergama's character is so great. It so gets you when the bad thing happens to it because they've played it along so well. And you're rooting for Clooney's character to step outside of his, his, the walls around his soul and go after this woman. And, um, wow, well, then the bad things happen. And he's left kind of shattered and alone and living the life that he thought he wanted that maybe isn't the life that he needed. Up in the air. Jason Reitman, you did a good job with that one. So that is my list of 15 movies that stay with me. Maybe next time I'll do some happy movies. I think there's actually some movies out there that I like. Will, that, are make, that are happy and I enjoy uh, probably some Beatles movies uh, maybe we'll throw in Spice World and we'll go from there uh, those are my movies that stay with me again uh, for those keeping track I guess I could have just done this in a Facebook post, post and been quicker Field of Dreams Roxanne When Harry Met Sally Almost Famous Magnolia Collateral High Fidelity About a Boy Jerry Seinfeld's Comedian Rushmore Royal Ten of Tenenbaums Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind Shop Girl The Last of the Mohicans and up in the air. Those are my movies. What are yours? What are your 15 movies that stay with you, good or good? Bad. You can find me on Twitter at Ken Napsock or find me on Facebook at the Napsock Files and put your movies there. Like like the show there. If you're on iTunes, do us a favor: subscribe, rate, and review. Also, you can find us on Stitcher. So, uh, for me and my solitude, I'm Ken Napsock. This has been another edition of the Napsock Files. We will see you next time.